If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sadiq Khan announces a major review into affordable housing delivery after five years as London Mayor. Lambeth Council forced to compensate residents over refurb works which left Grade 2 listed Kate McIntosh designed homes in disarray. Failing to learn the lessons of Grenfell, a bitter row erupts over redevelopment plans for Erno Goldfinger's Notting Hill estate. How private companies are rejecting vulnerable Londoners to cheaper cities. The tens of thousands still waiting for safe bicycle parking spaces. And the Lundown is named Best Podcast at the 2021 Archibu Awards. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Luke Jones. Luke is host of the podcast about buildings and cities. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Our first story this week is all to do with an independent review looking at ways to increase Greater London Authority, that's GLA, housing delivery. It's been launched by London Mayor Sadiq Khan and reported on by Showhouse website and other industry blogs and publications. Khan has tasked Bob Kerslake, chair of Housing Association Peabody and a former chief civil servant, with leading the review, which aims to improve and streamline much-needed genuinely affordable housing development across London. Set to start immediately and coming just a few months after the mayor's second term re-election, the investigation will identify how many homes have been delivered through various routes so far and will also examine approaches to establish a new City Hall-owned development company, something that was promised by Khan in his manifesto. Ways to maximise the amount of affordable housing delivery on GLA-owned land will also be considered. London's mayor has promised to start construction of 79,000 affordable homes between 2021 and 2026, tied to £4 billion in grant funding from the government. In August, the mayor allocated £3.46 billion from the programme to deliver an expected 29,500 homes. So far during his tenure, Khan has achieved record-breaking delivery of genuinely affordable homes, with more than 17,000 low-cost homes to rent and buy started through his affordable programme in the year 2019-20, to for example. 
However, as many listeners based in London know, access to genuinely affordable housing is still far from easy, and our capital's extraordinarily harsh housing crisis still far from being resolved. It's a point which is particularly pertinent considering how much of London's extraordinary built environment heritage has been shaped by the pioneering work of councils and the GLA's predecessors, the LCC and GLC, who used ambitious housing programmes to create the unique city we all enjoy today. Announcing the report, Khan said, quote, I'm doing all I can to tackle the housing crisis in the capital, and I'm proud to have achieved record-breaking delivery of genuinely affordable homes during my first term as mayor, including working with boroughs to start more new council homes than in any year since 1983. The report's final conclusions are expected to be revealed early next year. So, Luke, clearly it's great that this investigation has been launched, but Khan has been the Mayor of London for five years now and won two elections. Why is he only reviewing the affordable housing plan now when the failings of London's housing system have been evident for decades? Thanks, Merlin. In my reading, the real significance of the new strategy that's being proposed is uh, the move towards a GLA-led developer carrying out its own projects in place of what has been the kind of previous method for delivery of affordable housing um, since the 90s, which is where it's been a sort of increment added on to private sector-led development plans. That's clearly an approach that has sort of run out of road. Uh, London doesn't build enough affordable housing, but it also doesn't build nearly enough housing overall there is um uh, there's been identified many times that there's a kind of need for r- roughly 50 to 60,000 new homes a year merely to address um the ongoing increase in in population so um something about the whole kind of current approach it, it isn't producing the sorts of outcomes that um could lead to any sort of real alleviation of uh, of the current the current um acute housing crisis. Um, Looking at what Khan has proposed, 79,000 starts uh, over five years is essentially just a continuation of um, more or less the level that was achieved in 2019-20, so around 17,000 homes a year. And it certainly is extraordinary hearing you digging into the contents of the report. Like you say, perhaps the most tangible bit is this idea of a city hall owned development company. Um, And obviously with London's history, it's fascinating to think that things like the GLC, the LCC before it, the Metropolitan Board of Works, housing was pretty much the main thing they did. Now, what's clear is it's no secret that the lack of affordable housing is a huge problem in the capital. And some boroughs are now writing to council tenants in temporary accommodation to say they may never be provided with a secure council tenancy in their home borough. Um, But obviously, we know London's not short of places to live. There's thousands of empty second homes and obviously lots of unsold luxury flats standing empty every day, particularly in Nine Elms, which we discussed on this show. Uh, Luke, in your opinion, what does London need to be doing to solve this housing crisis? Well, I think it's clearly a complicated question and there are sort of small and large uh, ways of of addressing it overall. It's worth saying also that the picture in London is kind of mixed. If you look at um, the distribution of uh, house building going on in the country, some London boroughs uh, are, you know, if you look at the distribution over the whole country of how many houses are being built, um, London boroughs are at both ends of the scale. you can obviously alleviate housing need at any time and to any degree by increasing the number of low-cost dwellings. 
um, for people in housing need. I, I mean, the kind of larger affordability crisis around housing is something much larger and much more systemic, which is uh, which is you know founded in a, a particular monetary environment with low interest rates that we've had broadly since um, the era of central bank independence, or um, this kind of long term shift away from pensions and towards sort of amateur landlordism as a retirement strategy among uh, thousands of, and millions of people. And then the kind of the law around renting and the sort of distribution of power between tenants and landlords. Um, I mean, any significant change to any of those things would, to some extent, unwind the current settlement. But plotting a course out of it where we kind of all the people who are in need get their needs addressed without any of the people who currently um, have built up uh, big kind of like asset price wins losing anything. It, it, it would be a very kind of complicated economic question. Our next story was covered by Brixton Blog. It's all to do with residents of Macintosh Court in Streatham, a Grade 2 listed sheltered housing development by the acclaimed post-war architect Kate Macintosh, and they've won a court battle against Lambeth Council over defective building work carried out on their homes. In the court settlement, which concluded last week, the council has agreed to compensate residents, provide rent rebates, and to carry out complete internal and external works on the affected buildings within 15 months. Macintosh Court, designed by Macintosh herself, whose nearby iconic Dawson's Heights is also available as a model in Open City's online shop, was built as a shared housing scheme for elderly Lambeth residents in 1970. The estate is so important to London's architectural heritage, we chose it as the starting point for our highly popular South London cycle tour. Uh, an on-demand audio version of this tour is also av available free for Open City friends. The site was earmarked for demolition in 2013 after Lambeth Council declared the estate was below standard and that it would be cheaper to demolish than to restore. Following an online petition championed by the residents and leading architects including Macintosh, the estate was granted Grade 2 listed protection in 2015. What followed was a £1.5 million council-led refurbishment which Macintosh said, quote, vandalised the listed buildings. She went on to say that the work was, quote, a litany of incompetence and failures. The architect said, quote, there was no proper site supervision nor coordination between two separate contracts. Speaking to Open City on the latest court outcome, Macintosh said that, quote, the settlement reached is a huge step forward and both I and the four appellant residents are enormously grateful to the solicitors for this success. She continued, but given Lambeth's record in the past for messing up, we are far from being out of the woods. So Luke, this is a shining an unfortunately rare situation in which residents win over a local council. It took a court case to get Lambeth to award damages, secure repairs and compensate residents. Now that isn't something many residents across London can afford to do. What might the situation have been had the council not been taken to court? Well, I, I think we have a kind of clear understanding of what the council wanted to do, which is to clear and to redevelop the site um you know it's a relatively low-rise estate i think that their reasoning that it that the costs of um refurbishing the buildings were too onerous is clearly disingenuous um rather it's a site which 
has potentially a much higher developable value than is currently realized with the current layout of buildings on the site. And that's obviously something which, you know, an increasing number of councils do have this sort of slightly predatory um, view towards their own estate and the potential for it to be um, developed to a, to a kind of much higher density or, or to produce like a um, both a higher number of dwellings and, and a kind of excess of cash. Um, really, the whole story is about uh, failure of procurement. This is the way in which councils do maintenance largely through contracting out to large contractors on framework agreements with very little in the way of design-led project management. Uh, there's a whole sort of stratum of contractors who work in this area who are motivated to do things totally at lowest cost, as quick as possible. Um, for me, it's a sort of particular frustration of the post-Grenfell conversation that we've had about the mismanagement of housing estates is how hung up that conversation has been on questions of building regs or specification rather than the specific question of how procurement happens, how it's structured, who benefits, who does it, what the kind of incentives of the people actually carrying out the works are uh, in the conduct of the project, all of which seem to me, and I think we see in this case, are, are really hugely more consequential. The, the broader picture here seems to be post-war architectural heritage being critically undervalued. And now there are lots of councils all across the country, and especially in London, um, who steward buildings like this. And Lambeth often gets a lot of fire over its stewardship over them. But there are other people in who, who could do better as well. Now, this, they've, they've been taken to court and they've been forced to, to do the right thing. Um, could this latest debacle signal a kind of turning point? Could this be the moment where, where councils get serious about this type of heritage? I really hope so. I mean, there is a very peculiar situation that specifically in the case of post-war buildings, listing just seems not to be enforced currently. Um, it was clearly sort of quite astute of Kate McIntosh to advise the residents in the first place to push for listing, which has given them a degree of power to insist on their rights against the council. And I think that that in particular seems to offer a very important model for other tenants, other leaseholders who are in a similar sort of situation. Um I mean, why is post-war architectural heritage undervalued? It, in a sense, it's a sort of peripheral territory in the ongoing sort of conservative culture war. Um, its undervaluation is uh, part of the kind of folk reception of um, different periods of architectural history, which, um, you know, is that something which is changing? I think it's something where there is a, a different perception of that perhaps developing um generationally but it's not something which i see transforming enormously quickly unfortunately and i think that there will certainly be other groups of tenants other groups of residents who will be placed in similar situations to this and may need to call on on kind of similar strategies now on last week's show guest host open city director phineas harper asked you the london listeners to donate the equivalent of the price of one flat white coffee a month so that we can continue to make this show and other amazing open city programs free for those who couldn't afford them otherwise and today this is very exciting. I want to thank five people who took up that call and two people who went even further and signed up as Open City friends. So, those seven people are Daria Kepper-Green, Connor Maloney, Nicola Yanev, Johnny Folger, Daniel Oval-Costal, 
Rachel Godfrey and Tom Paul. I just want to say to all of you, thank you. The Lundown is only one small part of the work we do at Open City. We run education programmes, training courses for young people, and each year we put on the Open House Festival for free, which is enjoyed by more than 250,000 people each year. We run these programmes for free because we believe that everyone, regardless of wealth, deserves to be able to learn about and have a voice in shaping their built environment. The free model only works if those who have a few quid to spare at the end of the month are generous enough to donate something back so we can continue to make shows like the Lundown and festivals like Open House free for those who couldn't afford to contribute themselves. So if you're able to support us, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white and help us to continue to make this show, the festival and our many other programmes free, open and accessible. And we promise to thank everyone who chips in on the following week's episode. Our next story follows a heated public meeting in which residents of West London's Trellick Tower and the neighbouring Edenham Way clashed with Kensington and Chelsea Council's deputy leader, Kim Taylor-Smith, over plans to build a 14-storey tower right in the middle of the world-famous listed estate designed by the acclaimed Hungarian architect Erno Goldfinger. In 2008, the council, despite protests from local people and architectural conservation groups, demolished the Edenham Residential Care Home that formed part of the Goldfinger-designed social housing project. Since then, the site has been temporarily used for little more than a minibus car park. Now, the council and the property developer Ballymore is proposing the further demolition of a listed garage block and part of the very famous street art wall known as the Graffiti Hall of Fame to make way for a Howard Tompkins designed 14 storey tower that will bisect the site. The proposed development has been met with vigorous resistance from the community and in fact goes against even the council's own supplementary planning policy which was adopted uh, in dialogue with community representatives in 2015. Alarmed that their voices were not being heard, residents of the Cheltenham estate called an emergency public meeting which took place earlier this week. At the meeting, Deputy Leader of Kensington and Chelsea Council, Kim Taylor-Smith, was accused of ignoring the concerns of local people and not learning the lessons of the tragic Grenfell Tower nearby, which killed 72 Londoners on the 14th of June 2017, uh, despite many of the tower's residents raising concerns over fire safety long before the night of the tragedy. The council's own consultation on the proposed development at Cheltenham Estate found that only 12% of local residents were supportive of the new scheme's height, with 66% opposed. But Taylor Smith has denied that the consultation outcome should have any bearing on the design of the development, saying, quote, What consultation doesn't mean is that ultimately residents get the say. Finn Harper attended the meeting for London. I've never attended a public meeting like it anywhere in London. The pain and frustration of residents was visceral. Everyone clearly felt this enormous project was just being pushed on them without any real say at all. And what was so shocking was that rather than reassure the residents who attended that their concerns were being heard, the council staff present were very bullish about the fact that they were actually planning to simply ignore the outcome of their own consultation process and the policies of their own supplementary planning guidance in order to push through this 14-storey tower. Now, there are some times when local authorities should pursue controversial projects, such as building new bike lanes, but Kensington and Chelsea is the borough where the Grenfell fire took place, 
and to hear councillors on whose watch that tragedy happened and who subsequently vowed to put residents at the heart of their housing agenda now turn around just a few years later and say they are happy to completely ignore the concerns of their tenants and leaseholders felt like a really chilling return to the terrible mistakes of the bad old days. So I have promised, as part of the council plan, to deliver new, much-needed homes, and I commit to that promise. And that means sometimes making very difficult decisions. And consultation, yes, it is trying to reach a consensus. We haven't been reaching a consensus, but what consultation doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that ultimately the local residents have the say. That's right, to do with the... the so, Luke, what's this all about? With the Grenfell tragedy still so fresh in everyone's minds, you would have thought that Kensington and Chelsea Council would have learned to take the concerns of their residents more seriously. Uh, what should they be doing to rebuild trust and learn from past mistakes? There are fairly obvious aspects of this scheme which are egregious. Um, and as Emma Dent Code says in the building design story on this, the fact that it's actually not providing a meaningful amount of new affordable housing uh, is the most obvious, um, the most obvious problem with it. Um, for, for me, uh, in terms of reassuring existing residents, I think it's much what I would like to see are much more sort of tangible commitments to residents and tenants associations being involved in how the commissioning and management of repairs and improvements actually happens, uh, which they're, you know, they're in general already paying for. I think that the opacity of those processes and the um, lack of, of kind of um, input, uh, the sort of separation of housing departments from the people that they are uh, technically serving, I think is... Um, really the thing which you would want to see starting to be addressed. I think that um, the conduct of Kensington and Chelsea in particular does seem to be reflective of an extremely strong sense in that council that they only have to serve the people who vote for them um, and that they can safely uh, sort of minimise um, the kind of views and the uh, needs of people who are sort of by and large more likely to vote the other way. Um, I think there is a kind of whole issue about what these sorts of consultation processes are intended to achieve. And I think that there is a sort of unfortunate aspect of both consultation and planning to some extent where um, from the point of view of the people being consulted, they often seem to resemble a kind of shell game in which they are sort of seem to be performatively producing a kind of sense of agency which actually isn't really there, uh, that they're a kind of pro forma which has to be gone through before the thing which was always going to happen can just happen anyway. Our next story this week was reported in the Waltham Forest Echo and sadly again concerns vulnerable residents being let down by a local council. At least 214 of the poorest households in the London borough of Waltham Forest have been forced to make the choice between relocating 100 miles or more away from London or becoming declared instantly homeless by the local authority. This is all the result of the council working with the private company Relocate, this sort of Relock 8, UK since 2019. Last year, Waltham Forest spent £25.4 million on temporary accommodation for its homeless population, caused in part by the 10,000 strong wait list 
on council homes. Relocate, the quote, relocation experts, are a private company offering councils an alternative solution by offering those in need accommodation in cheaper cities. Waltham Forest, the echo reveals, is relocate's biggest customer. Residents who refuse the relocate home, even if they have never seen it or been to the city, are deemed to have made themselves voluntarily homeless and must leave their temporary accommodation. One such resident, Nadia Zamin, a 38-year-old single mother, was offered a masonette in Stoke-on-Trent this July and was given a deadline for her decision two days later. While the council maintains households are able to view the offered home before deciding, Nadia, speaking to The Echo, said she was explicitly refused the chance to do so. So Luke, what do you make of this decision to outsource the relocation of the borough's most in-need people to a private profit-driven company? Well, it's clearly an appalling situation for the people who are subject to these kinds of moves. The idea of being forced to give up your entire network of uh, friends, family, support, uh, in many cases children moved out of their schools, moving away from any kind of job or employment that you might have um it, it, you know this is clearly uh clearly a, a kind of abusive uh situation that these um people are being put into and it should be banned at the same time when council housing lists are under this kind of pressure all sorts of fiddles are naturally going to proliferate this is this is one uh, there will always be others in a sense the waiting list itself is one such sort of um kind of fiddle or mechanism because people who in desperate need of housing are forced to wait to put aspects of their life on hold uh, to deal with kind of chronic uncertainty to live in terrible or often unsuitable temporary accommodation until some of them kind of give up find other some other sort of solution uh, die go somewhere else um, and it's it's reflective of the it's the reflective of the kind of situation which is going on all over the city. I, I, I imagine. I think that these, um, these sorts of waiting lists are um, not particularly more acute in Waltham Forest than they are in other places. Next up, we have a story covered by The Evening Standard, featuring new data revealing that tens of thousands of city dwellers are on waiting lists for secure places to store their bikes. According to figures released by PA News Agency, there are just 20,000 bike hangar spaces in Britain, while 51,000 are stuck on waiting lists. The vast majority of publicly accessible bike hangars are in London, yet even in the capital they are hugely oversubscribed, with some boroughs having waiting lists thousands of residents long. It's hardly surprising, considering so many people are in cramped shared accommodation with limited internal storage space, and that so many low-income Londoners are forced further and further out of the centre and away from their jobs, placing greater reliance on their trusty, pedal-powered, low-cost, zero-carbon transport option. Elsewhere in the UK, only Glasgow, Edinburgh, Bristol and Salford had hangars, while other major cities including Birmingham, Cardiff, Liverpool, Manchester and Newcastle had none at all. Figures also revealed that in some areas it can be more expensive to park a bike in one of these hangars. Um, sometimes it costs more than £70 a year. Um, this is more expensive compared to, for example, an annual residence parking permit for an electric or low emission vehicle, which in some areas is free. <laughs> 
The on-street covered hangars in London typically take up the same space as a car uh, and store up to six bikes, providing lockable and dry spaces for people who may not have space for them at home. According to the Office for National Statistics, more than 77,000 thefts of bicycles were reported in England and Wales in the year ending March 2021. That is equivalent to more than eight thefts every hour. Olympic cycling gold medalist, Greater Manchester's Transport Commissioner, Chris Boardman, uh, described the number of people waiting on lists for bicycle hangers as both, quote, deeply frustrating and fantastically exciting. He went on to say that, quote, we've allowed streets to become dominated by cars, but if you want people to travel differently, then you've got to remove the barriers and secure parking comes up time and time again as an essential part of it. So, Luke, Leo Murray, he's the director of innovation at the climate charity Possible, warned that it was the prevailing lack of secure storage space for bikes that is routinely identified as one of the biggest barriers to increasing cycling uptake, particularly for low income and inner city households. With this in mind, why are we still in this situation where bike hangers are so oversubscribed and car parking spaces seem to be prioritised and even subsidised in the case of electric vehicles, which... I think we will agree, are far less environmentally friendly and fun than bikes. Yes, it's a very familiar situation, this kind of characteristic shuffle down the corridor of the Victorian conversion over the pram, under the gas meter, up the stairs, this kind of thing. I was amazed also, we recently um, we recently actually bought a car and uh, I was amazed at how cheap it is to park a car, how cheap your residence permit is compared with all of the other sorts of things the cost of a travel card or the cost of all of these other um, these other sorts of transport options it is clearly reflective of a kind of outdated norm even within the whole of greater london um, car ownership by household is only about half have no car and within inter- within inner london um, it's much lower um, I think in in I live in an area which has recently been consulting on introducing a low traffic neighbourhood and the uh, surveying about the level of car ownership has revealed that it's something like only a quarter of households that have a, a car and we're not that you know we're in zone three so it's not it's just clearly a hangover from a previous sort of expectation that cars are a normal way to get around and bicycles are in some way a, a, a kind of hobby now in the past week uh, there's an article in on london it's a stoked controversy online after claiming a culture of elitism among cyclists is preventing more people taking to two wheels Um, it provocatively argued that quote campaigners self-righteousness has reached an alienating pitch Uh, and argue that the culture around cycling needs to change in order to appeal to more people. Um, However, despite these claims in the article, new data from TfL has indicated that the cycling community in London is increasingly more diverse than ever, with black, Asian and minority ethnic Londoners just as likely to have cycled in the past 12 months as white people surveyed. Um, That's the first time ever that that statistic has come back. Um, Why, perhaps historically, has there been such heated preconceptions about cycling and cyclists? Um, and if we are witnessing a real cultural shift now, what could be behind it? I mean, my perspective is that I do think this is a bit of a straw man, actually. Like, cycling in the city is primarily a transport modality. It's not a culture any more than taking the bus is a culture. And the attempt to frame it as such is, a, for me, an attempt to make it abnormal, 
versus taking the the bus or driving, all these other sorts of things. I guess it's certainly true that in the days when there was very little cycling infrastructure, it was a much more physically demanding and stressful uh, occupation and way to get around and and did consequently sort of skew a bit male, a bit kind of fitness, a bit aggro. Um, There was a bit of a type, I think, but although even then it was far from universal. Um, In areas now which have segregated cycle lanes you really don't see this at all it's just you know this kind of perception of cyclists as uh, kind of you know self-righteous diehards doesn't stand up to any kind of uh, contact with the reality of what people are doing on the streets with their bikes um, there are actually lots and lots of uh, subcultures of all kinds within cycling um, you know like the uh, 20 lads on Santander cycles is an absolute staple of the kind of uh, London drill video for example as is like um, you know the plywood child box full of toddlers going through the park is a kind of completely different one uh, there are all sorts of things going on I, I kind of think that this this idea that there is a sort of unitary cycle culture is a product of uh, kind of online discourse I think there are certain people who I think um, are forced to argue in a very trenchant way to try to make sure that the uh, recent progress on the provision of cycle infrastructure isn't rolled back and they necessarily kind of have to adopt a certain way of of, of kind of arguing building support and trying to um, trying to maintain pressure for that to continue to happen but that shouldn't be confused with the reality of what people are actually doing in the city which as this uh, data is now capturing is actually extremely diverse our final story is all to do with the big big news that the london has won best podcast at the annual archibu awards Uh, the judges describe the show as quote essential listening because it is both informative and pacey and it has built up an impressive number of listeners in a short space of time Um, After recording the first ever episode just eight months ago in February, we've been overwhelmed by the positive response from our growing listenership. Um, The show, which is produced in association with Architects Journal, is the result of an amazing team effort between our hosts, that's me and Zoe Cave, and our producer Poppy Waring and Open City's director Phineas Harper. Uh, At the core of the show is the amazing insight and tenacity shared every week by our special guest pundits. Um, We'd like to thank every one of our guests. Obviously, that's you, Luke, as as well. Um, um, But also you, our listeners, um, for tuning in each week. Um, So, Luke, as the host of the excellent and quite long established About Buildings and Cities podcast, um, perhaps you could tell us your thoughts on why podcasts are becoming increasingly so important to the architecture and built environment industries, but also um, where Lundown fits in as as a newcomer into this mix. Well, let me first say congratulations, richly deserved. Um, I think that there are lots of reasons why podcasts and uh, architecture and design have a kind of natural affinity. I mean, one actually is that architects and designers themselves are kind of a natural audience. A lot of the business of practice, doing drawings, putting together sort of slightly tedious technical material is something that you can do with a background of radio, audio, wallpaper in a way that, you know, lots of jobs like being a GP or a teacher or whatever are, kind of aren't really. Um, I think that there is... There are also things which podcasts as a form are naturally good for. Um, They are a way, they have a certain kind of reach. They can build particular communities of interest that mainstream media, I think, would struggle to identify because there's a, 
you know, it's quite easy to set up a podcast. The amount of equipment that you need to get going is not enormously expensive. Um, and it's something which you can kind of throw out into the world and then build a bit of momentum around. Um, I mean, there are obviously lots of great magazines and things like this which serve the trade or the wider field, but I think there has, in general, I think people have generally kind of underestimated the size of the audience that is interested in architecture and design and who are potentially reached by new media in a way that they are no longer reached by uh, kind of mainstream journalism. You know, if, if you were to compare the number of architecture correspondence in mainstream newspapers now with 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, it's something where there are far, far, uh, far, far fewer. I'm enormously optimistic about uh, new media and podcasts as a form. I've, I've said um, everyone who I meet and who I talk to about how to do a podcast, I always encourage them to do one because I think that there's an enormous amount to be gained. And I'm very, very, I'm very pleased um, to see the uh, kind of success and the momentum that Lundown has has built up, I think it's a really great um, it's a really great addition to the to the whole shared ecosystem. What does it look like the ecosystem in terms of, of these different ways, and where does Lundown fit into it? Because um, it's sort of come along as a new one, so to speak. Yeah, I think what's novel about what you're doing is, it, to me, it's a little bit more like a, I think of it as a kind of magazine format. It's sort of a little bit like Front Row or these types of um, radio shows in which you have um, uh, some subjects which are topical and you have guests and then you have a, a, a kind of quite structured dialogue around those sorts of things. I think probably the most common format of all in the architecture and design space is interview. Um, I think that that's that's kind of I can understand why that is I think there's an enormous potential to platform and expand the audience for conversations with really fascinating designers and researchers which otherwise are um, were much more limited to a particular institutional context um, the form that we follow is a sort of narrative it's a little bit like narrative history but with a much stronger sort of dialogue uh, component um, a, a format which, to be honest, is actually most commonly found in true crime, but which we've—I don't think we realised at the time that we were—that um, that was what we were appropriating. But now, on reflection, I think that's probably where it comes from. It's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the Lundown this week. Thank you for joining us. Um, where can our listeners go to keep up to speed on all the amazing things you're doing? Well, if you're interested in our podcast, uh, our website is aboutbuildingsandcities.org. We are on most social media at about underscore buildings. Uh, our extremely energetic and competent editor, Matt, uh, posts a lot of supporting material and sort of beautiful stuff that he's, dis that he's you know, discovered in the course of our research for the various podcast episodes. Um, or on Google about buildings and cities, it's pretty easy to find us. Awesome. Thanks again. It's been amazing and hope you can come on the show again in the future. Thanks a lot, Merlin. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at OpenCityLondon 
or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 